and welcome to episode 12 of the Far Post podcast. My name's Marissa Lordanik. I'm joined by Sam Lewis, Angela Christian Wilkes, and Anna Harrington. And I need to address the elephant in the Zoom. Um, we've all rocked up to tonight's recording in the same outfit, and it's a little bit embarrassing. And I think, you know, one of us needs to change at least because. Um, <laughs> It's just, you know, it's a bit dorky, guys. It's especially dorky considering we're all wearing T-shirts with our own faces on them. So, uh, but anyway, we're back for another episode. It's time to chat more women's football. So we'll start as we usually do with our You Love to See It. Sam, what did you love to see this weekend? This weekend, I loved to see a giant of the women's game get knocked down a peg. Olympic Lyon lost their first league game in four years to PSG over the weekend. It was a fantastic game. It was the kind of game that I think everybody was expecting to happen sooner or later. Uh, PSG had answers to every question that Lyon were asking them. And it was honestly just really refreshing seeing Lyon panic. Uh, in the last sort of ten, five to ten minutes, they chucked Wendy Renard up front uh, and the coach was basically yelling at the players to bomb it long, trying to get, it, get the ball to Wendy to see if she could do something with it. So congrats to PSG. Um, I think this is great for the game in France generally. Those two teams have been going at it um, and have been accelerating away from the rest of the pack for a couple of seasons now. Um, but I think that it's, you know, it, it's always good to see um, a two-horse race when it comes to these kinds of competitions. Leon have been so dominant for such a long time um, and it, it could throw a spanner in the works when it comes to Women's Champions League season as well. So, yeah, uh, PSG beating Leon for the first time in four years, snapping an 80-game winning streak. You love to see it. You do love to see it. And because you mentioned it, I'm pretty sure Champions League draw is this week. So I... We'll probably be talking about that in the weeks to come, so we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Angela, what did you love to see this week? So we've gone from really big picture, you love to see a whole game. Um, I'm going for a much shorter, smaller moment. I loved Kim Little's little dink um, over the Spurs defence in the Conti Cup game the other day. Um, it went over their heads and landed at the feet of um, Vivian, Vivian Miedema, who scored. So that was just a real cheeky little moment. And Kim Little, such a good player. It's always a joy watching her play. So I love to see that. We do love to see Kim Little, and we were very lucky to see lots of Kim Little down in the W League. And finally, last but not least, Harrow, what did you love to see this weekend? I love to see um, Australian youngster, well, at the very least, we're claiming her, Mary Fowler score a ripping goal uh, for Montpellier. Uh, they won against Le Havre 3-1. They were already up, I think, 2-1 when she came on in the 82nd minute. And then in the ninth, this ball's come in. She's taken this amazing first touch, beaten the defender in the process and absolutely smacked home the finish. It was um, absolutely sensational, proper striker's instincts. And for mine, it's the best thing I've seen from Mary Fowler given, um, I guess, the standard she'd be playing at, the time in her career, and just, I guess, shouldering the entire burden of, I guess, doing all the work and then the perfect finish, which is just so encouraging to see, especially from a young player. Um, it's also pushed Mon- Montpellier uh, fourth in uh, 
the French division behind Bordeaux in third, Lyon in second and PSG um, with that win over Lyon that Sam mentioned, uh, top of the table in France. So, yeah, Mary Fowler absolutely doing the thing. You love to see it. You really do love to see it. Uh, we didn't have any FAWSL, but the FAWSL had some things to say. We had not one, technically not two, but three coaches gone. Obviously, um, Spurs have two coaches and we also had West Ham's uh, coach leave. Angela, as our resident West Ham nuff, tell us about Matt Beard's departure. Uh, yeah, I... For me personally, it was a little bit of a shock seeing the news as um, my, I guess, messages to the group chat will attest to. Just, yeah, for, it felt like it came out of nowhere, but when I was having a dig through, I guess, um, the reactions from fans over there in the UK, it seemed like, you know, it was a thing that was going to happen and it had been not a long time coming, but sort of, yeah, expected um, that Matt Beard would depart. Um, my initial assumption was that maybe the club sort of nudged him out, but apparently it sort of went the other way a little bit and there was a bit of back and forth and discussion there with um, West Ham West Ham women's manager Jack Sullivan actually trying to convince Matt Beard to stay on after he initially said that he wanted to resign. But, yeah, um, West Ham are, are still without um, a replacement coach, whereas Spurs acted pretty quickly, it seems. So um, their two coaches, Karen Hills and Juan Amaros, were, yeah, pretty much dropped the same, the exact same day as Matt Beard. So it was a bit of a double whammy there. Um, and they've brought in Rianne Skinner, who is in the England setup under Phil Neville. So yeah, um, I do, I do think the situation we won't get too too far into it, but um, it does bring in some interesting questions around coaching and how we treat coaches in the women's game, especially as we're seeing this rise in professionalism. Do we expect that to like coaching? I guess, appointments to mirror that of the men's game where, you know, a string of bad performances in a a team that should be performing well um, means that there's consequences and quite immediate consequences for coaching staff. I'm I'm not too sure. Um, But, yeah, Katie Wyatt wrote a great article on that. Um, Yeah, Sam, did you have any, I guess, thoughts and onions on the situation? It's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I read the Katie White article as well, and I thought it, it touched upon the sort of central question that I've been thinking about when I heard about the um, the coaching situation in the FAWSL, and that is around expectations. Like, what are we expecting from coaches now that they're moving into this new professional era? Are we able to still give them the kind of space that they were given uh, in sort of years past, where <clears throat> excuse me, they were weren't they didn't sort of have the the resources or the structure around them um, where, you know, to in order to sort of, I don't know, give them a, not an excuse but, um, I don't know, where where their, their sort of central performances were not clouded by other issues that they would have had to deal with off the field. I'm not sure if that makes sense. But, yeah, you know, the the central premise of of um, Katie's article was effectively that we can't uh, hold 
coaches in the women's game to the same kind of standard, the same sort of rigorous standard as we do in the men's because of the huge gulf in uh, resources and access to facilities and staff and all this other sort of stuff that's beyond the coaches' control. Um, that coaches, particularly in the women's game, particularly women coaches in the women's game, come from a very different um, kind of a background and that they need to be supported um, in a, a sort of a longer-term system than they do in the men's. And it's also, I think, worth thinking about, you know, when we draw parallels to the men's game, we're drawing parallels to a league like the Premier League, which has been going on for a really, really long time, uh, the coaches there are very, very well established already um, and this has sort of become the normal cycle of things. Um, I'd be curious to see whether similar kinds of um, drastic coaching changes happen to clubs lower down the ladder. Um, I think it's it's interesting that this has happened to two clubs that are relatively well resourced and well stocked. You know, West Ham and Tottenham, they're two clubs that you'd expect would be mid to top of the table in the FAWSL over the next few years. Um, but if it comes to a Bristol City, for example, if it comes to, um, you know, a Birmingham or a club that is not affiliated with a Premier League side that doesn't perhaps have the same kinds of resources that Premier League or, or the tops sort of FAWSL clubs do, are those coaches going to be held to the same kinds of standards as their peers? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting and there's obviously been some conversations that's happened that have happened behind the scenes, um, at, at both of those clubs that has justified the decision. And yeah, I mean, hopefully I'm looking forward to seeing Rianne Skinner. Um, I, I'm, I'm always encouraging of more women in top jobs and I'm looking forward to seeing how she could take over a squad that the club clearly believes could and should be doing better. Yeah, Sam, I think it is interesting when you look at maybe those lower ranked teams versus the ones that have. I guess the top Premier League teams, I think it's maybe something we do see become more of a trend where if you have underperforming squads from teams that have that bit more money, they just can go, we can cut our losses, we can cut a, a year-long contract or we can cut that bit more. Where you know, Like you see in the Premier League where they go, things aren't working, change at the top, let's get results. I think um, it wouldn't surprise to see a bit more of that come through. Um, and the other thing is I think you mentioned as well in terms of the resources that coaches are afforded or maybe the pathways. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more and more coaches start to come through pathways, whereas I think you've probably seen in the past that there may have been a level of, I guess, you land in a role or you're a, a senior player who goes into coaching, who goes into that. You might see more of the, I guess, a similar trajectory that you see in the men's game where for a lot of coaches they have to start with maybe a lower league team and work their way up. I wonder if we'll see some more of that. So, yeah. It's certainly interesting timing as well um, with both those co- with sorry with both those teams, and you wonder if it can be the spark that I guess sees them get the potential out of some of these te- some of these players, or if it'll be, I guess uh, the turning point that sees them, not the turning point, just sees them keep going in the same direction. But yeah, pretty eventful week, all things considered. I think the timing is hopefully the idea is these teams can switch it around and climb up the ranks a little bit more. I'm not too sure. Yeah, going back to expectations, Sam, if the um, goals for the start of the season for both of these teams were that they should be, you know, finishing top six um, rather than top eight or doing better than last year. But now, yeah, probably need to improve from here on out because it's been a pretty shabby start for both sides. 
It absolutely has. And I suppose Aussie hats on, we've got a few Matildas at those two teams and I suppose the two in particular that new coaches could be an interesting factor are uh, Alana Kennedy and Emily Van Egmond who have only signed the loan deal. So it'll be interesting to see if they want to stick around for these new coaches, if these new coaches want them. It's just something to um, keep our eyes on. So we also had a Conti Cup at the end of last week and our Tillies were running absolute riot. Uh, we had Hayley Everton's Razo beat Liverpool. I said Hayley Everton's <laughs> Razo. <laughs> what happened in your brain then? That, uh, that was so interesting. So oh my god, that was so good. I'm I keeping this. This is great. Right. That was so funny. Anywho, it was Hayley Razo's Everton beating Liverpool one nil. Um. I'm not going to try to explain Conti Cup. We'll get to that later. But um, Everton had a win, which you you love to see. We had West Ham winning 4-0 over Charlton. Emily Van Egmond scored again because apparently now she's just a goal scorer and she's getting down with her bad self. Um, we had Bristol City beating Lewis 3-1, which was excellent. We had Ella Mastrantonio back in the lineup. No Chloe Legazzo after her... Uh, schnoz incident from last week and then the bananas game was uh the north london derby where we had uh arsenal and tottenham draw 2-2 arsenal eventually won 5-4 on penalties i don't think either of them then made it through to the quarterfinals again not getting into it now we'll get into it later but uh we had lydia williams make her arsenal debut which is very exciting we had caitlin ford scoring which is Always good to see, and we had both Ford and Kennedy scoring penalties, which is a personal favourite thing of mine. Just wish they scored penalties more often. But um, anyway, not the point. We wanted to talk about Alana Kennedy. For some reason, she seemed to be uh, playing this game up top, which is uh, interesting to say the least. Harris had some thoughts on Alana Kennedy generally for a while and she's ready to talk now. So, Harrow, the floor is yours. Pressure's on. Um, well, this is prompted by uh, when we obviously we couldn't see the game live, but one of the first tweets we saw come out of it um, for someone at the game was, Alana Kennedy is playing up top in a 4-4-2 um, for Tottenham, um, which bizarre. Didn't see that coming. Um, I'm not sure how long she actually stayed there for, if it was a bit of just throw the tall girl forward for a bit. Sam, you might be able to relate. Um, a bit of Wendy Renard uh, trying to get an 85th minute <laughs> tie for, for Leon versus PSG. What? Sure, I, I, I know that. I was just going to say you were local football in Sydney's uh, southwestern suburbs, Sam. but The MacArthur Martyr, that's what they called me. <laughs> and- <laughs> Wow. But anyway, the the general thing was it, it just reignited uh, my dislike for Alana Kennedy playing out of position at Tottenham, which is what I think she's doing. Um, she clearly seems to enjoy playing defensive midfield. Tottenham see her as playing in defensive midfield long term. And apparently Racing Louisville, who recently acquired the rights to Alana Kennedy, their head coach, Christy Holly, said, Alana is a world-class number six. Her ability on the ball to dictate a game and change the point of the attack is very exciting for us. So they see her as a defensive midfield. The only problem is we really need her as a 
centre-back in the Matildas. We know that Elise Keller knight is um, injured long-term and she's our preferred six. We know that Emily Van Avon's better up the field. We know that we are still working out exactly who our best number six is, but we do have some options there. One thing we don't have a huge number of options is, is quality centre-backs. Like, Jenna McCormick is still rel- relatively new on the scene. Emma Checker is also less experienced and is currently injured. Claire Polkinghorne and Laura, Laura Brock are both very experienced and are playing a lot of football right now, which is fantastic, but they're both clearly at the tail end of their careers. In terms of players who are consistently, our, one, our best centre-back and two, in the right age bracket to lead from that role, it's clearly Alana Kennedy. The problem is, at the moment, our best centre-back is not getting any experience playing centre-back against the best forwards in the world. By all accounts, they seem to love her at Tottenham for what she's doing. Um, I know, Sam, you have some thoughts on Kennedy in defensive midfield, but for me, it's just what does it mean going forward if our best centre-back is never playing there at club level? We want all our players playing in great leagues and getting the most experience, but we want them to do it in the positions they're good at too and the positions that we need them in. And, uh, yeah, for me, that's uh, something that, I just can't quite still get my head around and it'll be really interesting to see what Tony Gustafsson does when he comes on the scene because surely you want to be able to build out from the back and I'd have thought Alana Kennedy at centre-back would be a key part of that. Even if you bring a Steph Catley central or you bring in a Carly Rossbacken or whoever, I'd have thought Alana Kennedy would be the player that you would want to build that defence around. Yeah, I mean, like you nailed it. There, Harry. I, we've had this conversation before. I've written about this before. Um, Alana Kennedy as a number. I mean, I didn't know that Christy Holly made those comments about Alana Kennedy as a six. That's quite extraordinary to me. Um, maybe my expectations of what a good number six is is just very different from Christy Holly's. And he's a head coach. You know, I who am I? I'm just fucking someone sitting around watching games and thinking. So I'm also, I I try to look at this from the perspective of the player as well, right? Maybe she doesn't like being a centre-back. Maybe she prefers at the moment, at this point in her career, to be testing herself in a position, to be adding skills to her belt, to be um, challenging herself in ways that she thinks could add um, to the Matildas in the future. Maybe there have been conversations in the back rooms of the Matildas where they've said to her, if you enjoy playing as a number six, we know that we need a a number six uh, over the next four-year cycle because our two most experienced number sixes are going to be outside of the peak age bracket come 2023. So we do actually need to bring in somebody who is experienced in that role over the last, over the sort of the years leading up to the World Cup um, and someone who also wants to play there. You know, so, you know, it's really difficult to play as a number six. And if we, we've, you know, again, we've spoken about this in a previous episode. If we look across the entire um, Australian player pool and we try to identify classic number sixes, I can really only think of maybe four or five. Um, one of the, the you know, one of them is in England at the moment, Ella Master Antonio. I think she's a classic number six. And the others are participating in the W League and the MPL. So they're obviously not at the standard, not at the level, playing against the kinds of players that you would need um, in order to improve in that position. So 
Ivy Luke's another uh, good example as well. She's playing in Spain, but again, she's going to be quite old come 2023. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, that's it. <laughs> what have you Sam actually made of her as a midfielder? Because I know when we were talking about discussing this on the show, we have actually touched on this, but I think when we touched on it last, it was before I guess we got to see a bit of a body of work of Kennedy playing as a midfielder in the FAWSL. Um, I know one moment I saw was Jess Fishlock absolutely burn her off, and there's a couple of times. I think we've seen some great passing and some great one-on-one moments, and we knew she could do a lot of these things. But what have you made of her as an actual six? Um, playing in these teams against some of these good midfielders. Yeah, it comes back to my uh, my expectations of what a number six is. I think I have a very uh, a very sort of traditional view of, of how a number six should operate. I always think that a number six needs to have a really good centre of gravity. I think that they need to have very, very good close ball control. They need to be able to retain possession when they're under pressure and they need to have a sort of a grit and a grunt to them um, in a, a similar style to, say, a Danielle Vanderdonk, who is an absolute bulldog when it comes to that position. When she loses the ball, she does not give up until she gets it back. That's my that's that's the kind of number six that I love. And Alana Kennedy so far at Tottenham hasn't shown me any of that. She has lost the ball quite regularly. Um, when she does lose the ball, she doesn't seem to have this, this sort of the agility, not even necessarily the speed, but the agility and the sort of the, the quick reaction to be able to hustle and get the ball back. Uh, she has great uh, sort of passing ability. She has great vision. But I think that there is more that's required of a number six, particularly if you're operating in a system with one, one classic number six, that she needs to be, she needs to be learning um, in order to. Well, in order to, I mean, she doesn't need to convince me. I'm no one. But you know, if if Tony Gustafsson is coming in and, and he has a similar um, approach to the kind of defensive midfielder that he wants to be playing to what I do, then I think she needs to be doing a lot more, or she needs to be reconsidering the position. Well, I think the best example of if you're looking at a defender who goes into defensive midfield is Juliet's. That is the classic example. If you want to. Absolutely. number six that's you know central defender turn number six you have to have that tenacity that want to will that will and want to win every ball like the aggression the skill the well-timed tackles I think a little burst of speed probably doesn't hurt I know that a lot of sixes aren't necessarily quick but the thing is the things about the passing range they're great attributes for a center back to have so <laughs> you know like all these things are great and you hope that her you know, those skills, as you said, Sam, have built up. But I would love to see her having to, you know, do the body work against Beth England or go with the smarts of Viviana Miedemar or deal with the heading ability of a Valerie Govan. And that's not the thing she's doing at the moment. Like, she might be developing other areas of her game. But if you're coming up against the best strikers in the world, you've got to be the best defenders, don't you? So <laughs> that's that's the thing that I guess frustrates me a little bit is I always have rated Alana Kennedy so highly like as a center back and I think we all rate her really highly I'm I'm sort of torn because I I I believe that players perform well when they are playing in the position Mm. that they love and when they're happy and when they're happy right and so and I don't want to I don't want to sweep in and tread on toes I don't want to 
you know, like we can have our opinions and stuff and we can assess things at a sort of the most objective level that we can. But if she's enjoying playing there, mm. that's great. You know, Matildas aren't the be all and end all. Um, and it's, I feel like it's sort of unfair for us to hold her to that expectation or even to place that sort of structure upon her and expect her to reach that level. I agree. Like it's all at the end of the day, as you say, Sam, it's all personal opinion, what we'd like to see. She's clearly enjoying that role at Tottenham if that's what she thinks is best for a game. And as you said, Sam, those conversations may have already happened. Then, yeah, we're, there's only so much judgment we can do. I think the, the factor we look at is if she plays in defensive midfield all this time and then the first um, friendly we have comes around and she's back at centre-back, you go, it's a bit frustrating. Because if, if the first friendly comes around and she's slotting in at number six, you go, oh, well, doesn't Anna look silly for <laughs> comments back in, what, November? Maybe she's gotten more confidence to sort of go up into the midfield or to try out this position and, and play at a club level because we have, you know, Jenna McCormick and Emma Checker. They recently started training and playing with the Matildas. So that's sort of boosted the the centre-back stocks, but I don't think they're nowhere near at the level of leadership and natural, like, ability in that area as Alana Kennedy. And Steph Catley is always going to be an option and may well shift further central as she gets older and maybe lose a bit of pace. And, um, you know, it's decided that having that left-footed centre-back is really handy. But that said, if Steph Catley moves in, it's still going to be Alana Kennedy that I like best as a centre-back next to her. I mean, it may also depend on the system in which she's used, right? Like I'm thinking at the moment of uh, Sheffield United in the Premier League, right? Like last season, Sheffield had this system where instead of having overlapping fullbacks, they had overlapping centre-backs. That was a sort of a revolution in the Premier League and everyone was like, holy shit, mm. like this is something we'd never thought of before. So there are ways in which playing Alana Kennedy as a starting centre-back still allows her the freedom to move into defensive midfield and do the kinds of things that she might enjoy more, the kinds of things that she's good at, but it doesn't compromise her mm. actually being a centre-back still. Um, you know, maybe Tony, depending on the opponent, for example, maybe Tony would um, go with a, a sort of a three at the back sort of transition system where, you know, you start with a four, but then you move to a three with Kennedy moving into to defensive midfield and whoever is the classic number six moves into it like an eight or a ten. You know, like there's, there are so many options that still allow her the opportunity to, to be in that space. Alrighty then, so we'll switch things up a bit, more dub chat, more dub signings. Uh, we had unofficially Hannah Lowry and Tash Rigby were in the Perth Glory kit announcement, so we hope that means they're playing for Perth Glory this season. Um, in the media we had Isabel Dalton has left Napoli and will be returning to Brisbane Raw and Annalie Longo announced that she'll be back at Melbourne Victory, which is very exciting for VUC fans. Uh, Western Sydney have announced the signing of Margot Chauvet and uh, Brisbane have also signed another Kiwi in Olivia Chance. So we've had lots of signings. There's going to be a lot more. Melbourne City has announced that they're going to go on a giant announcement spree. They've dubbed it Dub Week, which I love as a concept. And so we're really starting to build squads and everything's starting to get real. But speaking of signings, we had a question on Instagram from at Canberra Panda, 
and they asked if you could pick a marquee signing for the W League or a couple, who would you love to see? So we'll go around the Zoom. Who would you like to see as a marquee signing? Any takers first up? Yeah, I mean, this is a really great question because it's, it, it sort of gets me thinking about the purpose of a marquee. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at the A-League, for example, the purpose of their original marquees was to bring fans and eyeballs to the league. So you had the signings of people like Del Piero, you had Dwight York, you've had Shinji Ono, you've had Honda, you've had all these amazing international players who have brought hype, they've brought new fans, uh, they've brought new memberships, they've, they've done all the sort of the commercial stuff uh, that you would want a marquee player to, to do. And so in that sense, you know, your answer to this question in the women's game would be someone like Marta. It would be someone like Alex Morgan. She's effectively a marquee player at Tottenham right now. They do it. They would do that sort of stuff. Mm. But for me, if I were to pick a marquee signing or marquee signings to come to the league, I would actually look to Asia. I would love to see more Chinese, Japanese and South Korean national team players come to the W League. Um, I think that the W League is in uh, it's in a position at the moment where it, it can really capitalise on um, the sort of the broader Asia-Pacific market. Uh, you know, Japan, we know, are bringing in a fully professional women's league next year, the WE League, which is really exciting. But I, I think that the W League has more appeal. Um, it has a bigger audience. It's part of a stronger women's sport culture. And if we were to really tap into these broader markets and bring across um, some, not just some up and coming, but some established women's national team players who we saw over the course of the Olympic qualifiers are sensational players. They not only, I think, would do, would tick all the boxes that a traditional marquee could, but they would also add some serious qualities to the league as well. And some, like, just sort of a different kind of dimension. They're not a typical kind of marquee signing. They're not just a martyr who's coming here for a holiday, you know. They would actually bring something to it beyond that. So that's the, that's the kind of marquee signing that I'd like to see. Sam, we've almost got a glimpse of it already with um, Yukari Kinga and yeah. Yuki Nagasato. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the personality they bring and the quality of players that they are, they're so loved. I thought Yuki actually almost brought a few fans like into the game to watch her, like just because she was so much fun to watch as a player. And Kinga is just sensational. And you forget that they're both World Cup winners and all these sorts of incredible achievements. I thought they were, um, yeah, both sensational. And I think Kinga's actually going to go on again at City. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they announce her. I hope they do because she's been fantastic. Um, but, yeah, Sam, you didn't actually say a player. you got to pick one of those players from Asia that you want. Oh, I have to actually pick a player? Yeah, I reckon. All right, so actual players who I would love to see, you know, if we can pry them away from the uh, from the funds of the Chinese Super League or from, from Europe, you know, you would love to see someone like a Wang Shuang. Uh, come to the W League, you'd love to see, I mean, you'd love to see, you know, someone as extraordinary as Saki Kumagai. If she finishes up at Lyon and decides she wants to sort of come and kick by the beach for a bit, you'd love to see someone like that. But even, even you know, younger players who perhaps haven't established themselves um, in the the national, their respective national teams yet, um, sort of outside their their own countries, someone like uh, Amina Tanaka or, you know, a, a Junendo, for example, players who 
um, really made an impact at youth level and uh, coming through the, the senior national teams now and are probably going to play a really big role in 2023. Like those are the kinds of players who I'd really like to see here. You put a lot more thought into your answer than I did, Sam. <laughs> I was just going to – sort of following a similar train of thought, I was definitely – I think you brought this up actually about when we were at the World Cup talking about the future of the W League and you were mentioning that it would be a great – opportunity to bring in players who are looking to close out their final years of playing in like a fun environment um and so going off that there's obviously Marta but I was like maybe one day Megan Rapino because we've seen it before but I sure. think that she's gone on a traje- traje- oh my god trajectory she's gone on a trajectory. I can't do it. Um, she's, she's had a journey since those oh, no. two games that she played for um, with Sydney FC like way back in the day. I don't know if anyone listening saw the W League like name a Woso fever dream and it was Megan Rapino playing for Sydney was one of those. But I think, yeah, coming full circle, her coming back, that would be a really interesting and um, – player to bring into the league but yeah if you want the intelligent well thought out big picture answer I definitely just defer back to Sam and yeah Kumagai would be incredible to have in the league that was my thought when you were talking about like players from the Asia Pacific my approach was way simpler than both of them I was like what players do I like um Well, I actually thought like if you were going to have the big picture one, Sammy mentioned like an Alex Morgan, I'd have said Megan Rapino, star power, the sort of player you'd come to watch. People know the name. Brand Rapino is bigger even than her football, and she's obviously gone on this incredible, to quote Angela, trajectory since she was last at <laughs> Sydney FC. Um, that if she did come to the W League, I think the star power would be incredible. Um, in terms of players I, I would love to see, I reckon Beth England would be great fun. She bangs in goals. I think Australian audiences love players that score goals, have a great time. Um, I personally would love to see Penelope Harder or Rose Lavelle as well. I think they'd be great fun to watch. Don't know if they'd necessarily suit the league. I still think Beth England is the player that could come in, could still deal with the physicality of the W League because it is a pretty physical league, I think people forget and would still boss it and score goals and would have fun doing it. And I think she's the sort of player that kids would see and they'd want to get the fake like leg tattoos and they'd be like, Beth England scores heaps of goals. She's the best. Um, at least that's probably what small Anna would have thought. So, yeah, that's probably <laughs> why I'd go with, uh, with Beth England. I just have the image of like big Anna, like Beth England playing in the league and you're like clinging onto the fence like, ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> go Beth. Yeah. <laughs> Another cool player that it would actually be really awesome to see is Khadija Shaw, who plays for Jamaica. She scored against us in the World Cup. Yeah, Bunny Shaw. And she's she's absolutely bossing it in France at the moment. Mm. She plays for Bordeaux, I'm pretty sure. Um, and yeah, so like play, like players outside of the sort of the Eurocentric countries, I think would be really fun to see. And it would be great to see more more you know Oceania Pacific you know players coming through the ranks as well. We need to just mention the last bit of signing news, which is that Perth has announced their new coach. So Alex Aparkas is heading over from Sydney Uni in the MPLW New South Wales and will be taking charge of the glory, which I think we're all in agreement is a really good signing. It seems like a really good 
kind of situation. Sam, I know you've spoken to him, you've written about him before. What are you making of this signing? Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, It's really exciting for a number of reasons. Number one, Alex Aparkis has won basically everything there is to win in the New South Wales Women's MPL competition. Um, he won every trophy with Sydney University last season, and which is which is really difficult to do. You know, the, no offense to Victorians, but the New South Wales competition is the strongest competition in the country, um, and he has led this team full of mostly uh, young players, players who are of university age, to uh, uh, three consecutive seasons of success. Um, he was, at, you know, Alex and I are pretty good friends and he was at a, a point in his career where he was actually worried that um, he had reached the ceiling and that there would be no doors opening up for him. So he was actually thinking perhaps of leaving and moving to um, just coaching or even just moving to men's. So I'm really grateful to Perth Glory for giving him this opportunity. I'm sort of grateful to the Rona for giving him this opportunity as well. Um He's he's a he's a very very good coach. He's very clever and he's very good when it comes to um, handling young players. And I think that that's exactly what Perth needs. Perth is in a rebuilding stage at the moment. You know they're in their post Sam Kerr era. Um, we've already seen a number of uh, players who played for Perth last season go to other clubs, uh, including a couple of young talents as well, which is disappointing. But I think it's a really good opportunity for Perth to to start again, to start a clean slate, particularly off the back of their first successful successful in a period of Rona, um, Women's Premier League, uh, Women's MPL season, their first one. And so, yeah, I think they're, they're bringing in a coach who understands the kinds of issues that um, players at the MPL level can face and he knows how to deal with them. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I think it's great. I mean, I, I don't have huge um, expectations of Perth this season, mostly because the you know they've only just appointed him and the season kicks off in just over a month so he has to put an entire squad together and he needs to try and have some training sessions with them before the season starts but that's fine you know this is uh, this w league season is meant to be a a building season it's meant to be a transition season into what is going to happen in the independent era of the leagues um so i i don't think perth are going to do particularly well but that's that's okay because they are obviously laying down some foundations for the future, not just when it comes to their players, but also when it comes to their coaching staff. And so that's what excites me most. Yeah, Sam, I think it's important for people to approach that this upcoming Perth season with that sense of perspective, like because of the timing. Well, for one thing, we know Sam Kurt and her bevy of American like teammates that tended to play with her for the second season aren't going to be there. Um, and I think the difficult thing for the timing is I think normally when you're a coach and you come up from like the state league, you can pinch some of your players across as well. Um, because of the timing of his appointment at Perth, he wouldn't have been able to do that with some of those players that he coached. They'd have already signed for Sydney or Wanderers or wherever. Um, so that's difficult. But the situation overall, I guess, is good because there shouldn't be pressure. He should have the opportunity to, you know, build his style and build his rapport with his players. And as you said, Sam, try and get the best out of this um this young Perth talent and really try and, I guess, develop on the run and learn as he goes. And I think that can be, it can be tough. Like it's going to be really thrown in the deep end in terms of not having a heap of time to build a squad and not having a heap of time to train and bed things down. And Alex Gummer spoke about this in our previous app, but 
if he felt like he'd hit his ceiling, then geez, he's just been <laughs> taken out of a small pond and thrown into a big, big um, Perth ocean because I think it's going to be a fantastic challenge for him. And yeah, I'd say that the the key for Perth fans is to be patient and to to I guess give him that bit of time as a new coach coming in. Speaking of uh, Roni affected things, uh, Canberra this season will not be playing at their spiritual home, which sounds really weird. Angela, did you want to talk to us about McKellar Park not being a W League venue this season? No, sad. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, um, Canberra. Yeah, United the other day announced that they'd be playing their six home fixtures at a different venue this season due to ongoing um, COVID restrictions. I'm not entirely sure about the details of it. It might be the fact that Belcon and Soccer Club are like attached to the stadium and that's in like in affecting it in some way. But yeah, um, the thing with the I think Canberra United is they do have such a solid and wonderful home ground, which you don't necessarily always see for every other um, W League club. Some are a bit more transitory and move between venues quite a bit. I know Victory like played at like four different home grounds last season. Um, So yeah, to have that is a really wonderful thing and they've got a really great culture there. I'm sure that will carry over to Viking Park where they'll be having their games this season. But yeah, it's just a little, just a sad one, but um, hopefully they can get back there. Yeah, so that's, I suppose, a wrap of dub news, but there is more Aussie Woso news, which is really cool and exciting. As we're speaking, there is a Women's Football Talent Identification Camp are underway in Canberra. Harrod, did you want to tell us a bit more about the camp and what's going on and what's just happening in that general space? Yeah, it's uh, it's called a Women's Talent Identification Camp. Um, it's 23-player domestic-based squad. Uh, to give you a rundown of who's in it, Ellie Brush is the only cat Matilda. Um, of the 23 named, no. None of the others, Bar Brush, had any Matildas experience. 19, I think, had been young or junior Matildas. And two players that were called up, Perth's um, Tash Rigby and then Cassidy Davis, who I think has since um, pulled out of the camp, hadn't had any call-ups at any level before this. Um, so it's really exciting. I guess it's part of, and Sam can talk to this in a moment, um, attempting to, I guess, bridge that gap between our senior core of Matildas who play a lot, get lots of experience, lots of game time at now club level, especially in Europe and at international level, and that next step up. Because I guess when you look at our um, rivals like the US Women's National Team or other places in Europe, you've got a really strong base, you've got depth, you've got a great core. And the idea is you want to develop, a sec- I guess, your second tier of players you want them to be able to step up and slot into the Matildas and not have to bridge a really serious gap in quality and experience and in game time. Because I think we've seen that you look at the 2019 Women's World Cup where some of our players just didn't, I think there's two or three players didn't actually play at all. Um, So what you want to have is when you have 23 player or more squads that you have players that you feel can step up and start. You know, you look at the US Women's National Team when, uh, Kelly O'Hara gets concussion, they can just sub in Ali Krieger. Like that's the next level sort of it. So we really need to develop our depth um, and that's where these sorts of camps come in. So essentially these players 
will train together. They'll play an internal gaming um, against each other. Uh, there's Matilda's staff there to teach them to educate. And Mel Andretta today at her press conference actually said that there will also be some participation, I guess, in terms of, I don't know if it's mentoring or what, from actual senior Matildas. So basically the the gist of it is you want to get these players that understand what it takes to be a Matilda, what they need to do to stay in the Matilda squad and how they can get their game to that next level. And at the end of the day, you need players that are going to suit what Tony Gustafsson does, which is intelligent footballers who, you know, quick on the ball, quick without the ball, good reaction time, good football awareness. And the only way you're going to get players up to standard is if they're getting more and more involved with these top quality activities. So, yeah, really exciting to see that come about. And Sam and I were both on Mel's uh, press conference today where she was talking about this and how important it is. And, yeah, I guess it is worth actually, Sam, you talking a bit about this performance gap because Mel cited it a couple of days, uh, sorry, a couple of times today. Um, we know that it's clearly relevant in terms of doing these additional activities and it's clearly something that has been identified in terms of, I guess, getting our players to where they need to be. Yeah, I mean, that was really well summarised, Harriet. Um Last week, I published a report in The Guardian about uh, some research that FFA are going to be releasing this week, uh, which is a women's performance gap report. And it does what it says on the tin. Uh, It identifies a lot of the sort of structural issues that have caused a huge gap to emerge between the senior Matildas, almost all of whom are in Europe at the moment, and the next crop, the next tier, the reserve side, effectively. Um, A lot of the stats, a lot of the data that the report uh, found are really concerning, but I think it's it's a good first step. I think it's important that this research was done um, because this is something that people had been feeling for a while. And I think we, particularly in the Women's World Cup last year, Um, when we had that sort of domino effect as a result of injury, the lack of player depth really, really came to the fore. Um, So it's it's really good that the FFA have have done this research and shout out to friend of the pod, Kate Cohen, for uh, being part of that and collecting all that information before she uh, shuffled off to MacArthur FC alongside former Matildas head coach Ante Milicic and his assistant Ivan Jolich as well. Um, so those three were really heavily involved in in pitching the idea and putting and gathering all the data and presenting it. So um, yeah, shout out to them. Um, but what's important for me now, or what's important for everyone now, is that FFA haven't just put this data together and given it to the world, or are going to give it to the world. They're actually already doing stuff to address it. And this talent identification camp is is the first part of that. Um, one of the, the major talking points from the report is that we need to have uh, what the report terms as our fringe players um, ha- getting more minutes at higher competitive international levels. And so this uh, this ID camp is meant, to, it's meant to be that. It's meant to be an opportunity for these players to come into an elite performance environment, play against each other and with each other, 
under the uh, the guidance and the mentorship of uh, elite coaches um, and uh, as well as the the sort of the, the guidance of senior Matildas as well. So it's not just about the, the sort of the physical environment that they're going to be in, but it's also the sort of psychological environment, as Andrietta mentioned, as Harrow said before, about what it actually takes to be a Matilda, how, you know, how it feels to be in those environments, how you how you get on with other people, how you deal with the expectations of, of that standard of playing um and 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 yeah and and you know i i asked mel whether this is something that we're going to continue to see and she said she hopes so um which is great it's really encouraging this is something that we need to see more of absolutely and hopefully uh we've recently seen in the last couple of weeks the ollie roos have played some friendly games against some senior a-league sides macarthur fc and sydney fc Hopefully, we'll see something replicated uh, in the women's league. Perhaps the, this could be the start of an under twenty three side, uh, an actual representative like international side. You know, Australia only has three age levels at the moment: We've got under seventeens, under twenties, and seniors. Um, but the report identifies that a lot of the countries that we're competing with on the international stage have levels at every single year starting from under 14s or under 15s going all the way up to 23s so perhaps this is the start of an under 23s Matilda's team um, and hopefully we can start to see perhaps in the next year or two um, some some friendly games that are organized for the public to be able to watch well Sam there's a lot of Kiwi players in the W League just, mm. just throwing that out into the ether there's some Kiwis already here there's you know the Bubbles open. I will actually just give a quick Tony update based on today's um, presser because everyone loves a Tony update. Um, I asked, uh, what's the situation in terms of the transition? Because I think everyone wants to know. We were hoping to have national team activity in November. That obviously didn't happen because of the Roni and so on and so forth um, in Europe. Uh, he is still working at Hammerby, his Swedish club, and Mel made a point of saying, they're respecting that. He's got his day-to-day stuff going on there. Of course, there's going to be conversations and meetings and check-ins. But one thing she made a point of saying was that he has actually really entrusted her and Ray Dower and Leah Blaney with the work that's being done here right now in terms of identifying and developing talent, um, which is something, you know, those three women have been invested in this whole time. And when he is officially on board, which is January 1 next year, that four-year contract kicks off, then that's when they will, I guess, properly be able to reconvene and talk things out and share that knowledge and, yeah, really start to take these next steps forward. So it's not that far away. And as I said, the sort of things that Mel said she was looking for in the players are things that um, Tony Gustafsson has said he wants in terms of that football intelligence, speed with and without the ball, those sorts of things. Another thing that I noticed was she very much said that this camp was another example of trying to get better every day. And... For those that watched Tony Gustafsson's press conference, <laughs> he made a really, really big point of saying, you know, one day better, being better every day. So it seems that even though he's not there and at the heart of things, that message um, is already there. And, yeah, I think that's exciting. Um, so we are really only about a month and a half away. Well, not even. Um, we're only just over a month away from the Tony era, I guess, officially beginning. But, yeah, in the meantime, it's great to see that he is totally backed in uh, three very capable um, women in football to, I guess, do some of this really important work in terms of bridging the gap between our most senior Matildas and that next step. Yeah, and, and going back to what you mentioned there about, I suppose, that gap, we have seen over the past few years, um, you know, fringe, well, not fringe, but like, I guess fringe Matildas or like really 
good quality W League players going into Matilda's camps and then sort of slipping off the radar again as well. And and we've discussed this before, but sometimes it that seems to come down to like a mentality thing, or perhaps it is, you know, being thrown into a completely new setup that you're just not um used to because obviously these camps run a lot differently to playing um, at a W League club or at any club level. So I think even, yeah, having that experience and um, being in that environment might make that transition if you do get that call up to go train with the core squad of Matildas Mm. um, a bit easier, which is a great thing in and of itself and I think maybe could help, yeah, bring the best out of the, the good talent we have in the league already or good talent we have with Australian players. The other interesting thing that Andrea said was that this uh, squad of 23 are not going to be the only 23 who come into mm. camps constantly. She's her, her, Ray Dow and Leah Blady are going to be looking across the country to run multiple camps with dozens of players. And that's what I think is the most encouraging part. It's it, There seems to have been finally a shift in mindset at FFA, amongst the senior management, amongst the staff, where they have realised that now they have this data that's proven the point, that that has confirmed the gut feelings that they all had, and now they can actually put in place structures and systems and decisions that is able to address them. And one of them is broadening the talent pool, which means giving as many players as possible the opportunity to step up. It's a good sign um, of FFA actually doing something with the data that they've collected because I think they've been accused in the past quite a lot of just sh- you know, dishing up another report and being like, well, there it is, and then not actually doing anything to fix it. Um, but but this, this feels different now. This feels like something is actually changing um, and hopefully it continues. And I think it's important to remember that the US Women's National Team and you can let me know, listeners, if I'm wrong on this stat, but their team that won the 2015 World Cup, I'm pretty sure Morgan Bryan was the the youngest player there and she was like 21 turning 22. Um, no, she would have been 22 actually, sorry. She would have, Morgan Bryan was the youngest player there and she was 22. It, you can't just have a team forever built on prodigious um, teenage talent and a few other um, guns. You've got to have the depth and you've got to have mature bodies and um, I think because the women's game has seen so many teenage pro- prodigies come through, people think that that's the norm. I think it's good for players to develop into their bodies and get better. And like you said, Sam, not everyone matures at the same time. And I will just touch, I will steal Marissa's role here because I did see a question that we had from at JubiXD. So Jibran Mohammed um, said, isn't having experienced core group of players, most of whom are based overseas, a good thing going into a World Cup? That's basically what the golden generation was. Yes, it's great having those players. It's fantastic. That's what you want. You want your best players competing against the best. But I think in this discussion, I like to think we've covered this question, but it's shown that you have to have the depth below because you can't just rely on your best 11 all the time. I think the last World Cup showed that. I think... um, you just have to look at how other teams have gone in the World Cup too. You've got to have that next level below, and it's something that the USA has done so well for so many years, having the next player ready to go. Her teammates look around at her as they're walking out of the tunnel or in the lineup for the national anthem go, I can count on you to have my back. I can count on you to score a goal when it counts. And at the moment, clearly there is far too much of a deficit between the players who have got it and the ones who might have it, but we just don't know. So... 
yeah, it's fantastic that we've got um, this brilliant group of players that are overseas and are doing tremendous things and uh, playing with and against the best in the world. But we want more players. And at the end of the day, competition for spots is the other factor too. Because you don't want to have, I guess, 10 or 11 players who always feel that they're going to make squads, that they're always going to be in a position. You want as much competition as possible. You, um, you want players to feel happy and secure and valued, but you want them to know that there's competition as well because that just makes everyone better. Good chat, guys. That puts a bit of positivity from us. You'd love to see it. Good day. But we're very positive people, except for when we're given things the boot. So let's give things the boot. Uh, Samantha, would you like to boot something? I would like to boot something this week. It was it was uh, foreshadowed at the top of the pod. The Conti Cup. What the fuck? What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> what? So okay, so the uh, sort of two mini boots. They're both sort of related. One, we couldn't watch any of them live. Just deal with that. We've addressed this so many times. Come on, people want to watch it. There were two huge games that were on this past round. There was a Manchester derby and a North London derby. Both games were great, and like that, both ended in draws. It was just like, come on, like we couldn't watch them. Um, but the second, like the, the I. D- how does it work? I'm just, I feel like I'm here with just big question marks floating around my head because Arsenal won the game against Tottenham on penalties and yet they're out. How does this work? What, who came up with this? What, I'd like just, uh, that's it. Because <laughs> I was, like, I was listening to... I was listening to Flo Lloyd Hughes uh, talk about this at the, on the Guardian Football Weekly podcast today, and she was asked about it by Max Rushton, and she had the same sort of exasperated, like you could tell, even though it's a podcast, that she was looking into the middle distance because she just like the way that they seem to have structured this is just really bizarre. Um, they've organised it into groups. The groups are regionalised. Um, and uh, you know, I'm sort of looking at the at the groups on on Google now. Like there, there are some that only have three in them. That some some teams have only played one game. Some teams have played three. Um, and yet there are some teams that have gone through, and some teams that haven't. Like I just don't, I just don't get it. Uh, to be honest, I don't really know if I want to get it. It seems like a pretty pointless competition to me. But anyway, that's for someone else to figure out. So that gets the boot this week. That gets my boot this week. Just ridiculous, ridiculous Conti Cup just structure. Just figure it out, please. She's booting, but she's puzzled by it. Um, anyway, another another boot. Harrow, would you like to give something the boot this week? Yeah, my boot isn't about being confused like Sam's. My boot is about... Liverpool just not learning from the last time they were terrible. Um, we know that their women's team got relegated. We know they don't support them or they didn't at least didn't support them and have been well and truly exposed on that front on a number of occasions, um, which was why it was such an unpleasant non-surprise to see that when they uh, unveiled their new AXA training centre in Kirkby, uh, 50 million pound new training centre. They pumped up the fact that it was uh, going to have Jurgen Klopp's senior team, who have obviously won the Premier League title and the Champions League, and the under 23s. But 
it did not have the women's team. So, yeah, it's it's just so odd. We know that the women's team is based out at Tranmere. They um they still have a contract running there. I think it's a three year contract in total. It might be up at the end of next season, which might be why they're not initially moving in there. That's not a reason to not pump up having them there in the future or to not have them there in the future at all. We've seen, and there's a great article, again, from Katie White, who's getting a really good run in this podcast <laughs> for good reason, on The Athletic. It's called, It's a Shame Liverpool's Training Ground Has Everything Except the Women's Team. And that is literally what it's about. We've seen so many positive developments in the FAWSL. Um, I think a great example is West Ham have uh, unveiled at their new training facility and all that sort of thing, whereas when the, the Berlin ground got shut a couple of years ago, um, they turned out the lights after the last men's game and the women were due to play and due to some awful petition, they said, no, 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 we can't have the women play on the ground after the men have turned out the lights, only to then turn around and have corporate games on the ground before they bulldozed the joint. And now they've then turned things around and have started supporting the women. We've seen um, Arsenal and Chelsea and Everton have all, you know, look to make their clubs more inclusive places. And, yeah, it just seems like Liverpool don't get it. You'd think that after the criticism they've copped, the way that they like to be perceived as this community club that cares, and then we know they had the whole drama with the furloughing, but that's a totally separate incident, to then turn around and just, I guess, not even think about including your women in this launch. It's not a hard thing to do, to get a couple of players in kit, to set aside a certain area. They're not exactly short of money. It's yeah, it's just really poor and I'm sure that we'll see next time their season comes around. They'll do a nice video with Jurgen Klopp and Jordan Henderson wishing the girls all the best and, you know, we're one club. But it doesn't matter if you don't show it. I think they've still got a chance to actually amend this. As I mentioned before, they still have a, the women's team still have that contract at Tramir. There, there has, as Katie mentions in her article, there's been an effort in terms of redeveloping pitches and facilities and that sort of thing. But... I just feel like this is such an opportunity missed after the massive PR blow that we saw and just, I guess, the statement of what the club is about um, with the way that the women's team, I guess, wasn't looked after in the last couple of years. I thought this was a really easy win. Um, We know that sometimes you have to share facilities and those sorts of things, but that's something you can work around. I just thought it would have been an easy win to involve the women's team in this and to show that you're looking to make progress. And at this stage, they just haven't done it. So Liverpool, not the women's team, Liverpool the entity, you're getting a boot. Ah, it's real. An enormous boot. When will you learn? When will you learn? <laughs> Your actions have consequences. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another meme for Instagram, sort of. <laughs> Thank you, Angela. You're welcome. But no, it is, it's a real weird one. And I said to you guys, like in our group chat, that the thing with Liverpool's, and I'm going to call it continued, like, just erasure and forgetfulness concerning their women's team. When Megan Rapino came out and was having a go at Man United for, you know, it was disgraceful that they hadn't come and support their team, blah, 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 blah. I was like, yes, I agree with you. They should have come to the table way sooner. But like, as if you're not having a go at Liverpool for what they've done. Like, yeah. giant target, very easy shot, Pino. Like, take it, girlfriend. It's a penalty. Um, li- <laughs> like, literally. Um, we'll ignore the fact that I'm a United fan because that's not relevant in this uh, particular conversation. But um, 
Yeah, so there's some big boots for you this week. So we'll switch it up then. We'll finish with some how goods. Angela, a how good? Yeah, my how good this week. Um, We finally got, uh, that sounded like um, a dig, but we all now have our Far Post t-shirts that my dad lovingly created. And um, yeah, we should probably, I think he's quite um, not anxious, but eager to, hear feedback and know that they're good so if you guys could just unmute yourselves and say that you like them that would be (laughs) but yeah no um they're great and we're all wearing them this evening as marissa mentioned earlier on in the pod um and it seems like he's just like gone off and started making other merch as well so stay tuned we'll update you but yeah how good how good how good and, and yeah, and shout out to, I, I, I wore my Far Post t-shirt to the Football Writers Festival this past weekend in Sydney. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's half of the reason uh, majority of people recognised me because I was the only one who had this big, bright pink patch on my shirt walking around. Uh, so yeah, so hopefully we've got a few more listeners. If, if you saw me at Manly wearing this t-shirt, this is your first episode. Hello, welcome. You've definitely joined at the right time. You've joined at a cracker. (laughs) (laughs) But, yes, welcome and thank you to Angela's dad. You are a gem. Like every time she mentions that, you know, you've sent another email, do they want this? Have you considered that? I'm just there like, this is the cutest shit. Like it's just, (laughs) it's so good. I love it. How good. Uh, Samantha, how good? Well, I mean, I haven't talked about Claire Wheeler for a couple of episodes, so I thought my how good this week would be a shout out again, another, I was shouting out so many people this set. a shout out to Claire Wheeler, who was called into the Matilda's Talent Identification Camp this week. Um, she, I've, I, you know, go back and listen to previous episodes if you haven't already. I think that Claire Wheeler is a sensational player. I'm so excited to see her play for Sydney FC this season. And now that she is obviously on the radar of the Matildas, coming back to this conversation we were having earlier this episode about number sixes, she is the uh, the, the classic number six that um, I, I love. So, yeah, um, well done to Claire. She absolutely deserves this opportunity to impress at the international level and I hope she stays there. So Claire Wheeler, my, my favourite player, uh, getting a, a, a shot at the Tillies, how good. And adjacent how good um, was at today's press conference with Mel Andrietta. The look on Sam's face when uh, Renee Valentine from the Newcastle Herald got in first asking about Claire Wheeler. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> Sam was wound I'm up. Surprised, I'm surprised my laptop didn't burn from the, the laser eyes that I <laughs> That I gave my webcam. <laughs> Sam was right. You can imagine that she was ready to go. This is the moment. This is the time. And the moment was so gracefully snatched away from her. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's cruel for me, but very funny. Um, unfortunately, you guys can't watch the video of that. But don't worry. I'm sure Sam will make up for it with many Claire Wheeler. Um, how good references in the future. Um, my real how good, uh, we mentioned before in the W League signing news that Margot Chauvet has signed for Western Sydney Wanderers. The Wanderers posted just this wonderful uh, post where a very, very young Margot Chauvet is at a signing session for the Matildas as a kid 
And in the picture, we have Tegan Allen. I think it's Sally Shippard. And Lena Kamas, who, funnily enough, is now going to be her teammate at the Wanderers. So, how good. A little bit of Matilda's fan turned W League player, turned who knows where her career will go to from here. It's the sort of thing that you love to see. Um, you know, the, it's, we talk about the, I guess, the classic role models example, but you can't be what you can't see. She's got to see women playing football at a top level, and now she's gone on and is playing it in Australia's top league. So Margot Chauvet making it to the top level and getting to play with a player whose autograph she asked for once as a little kid, how good. How good. That's going to be me watching Beth England in the W League. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to join my Monday Night Futsal team? (laughs) (laughs) We need a striker. We really do. Can you imagine rocking up to Monday Night Futsal with Beth England? Because I have a feeling a lot of the people there would not know and they'd just be like, who's the top knot? And then just, <laughs> I feel like it would be really good. But, yeah, I just, fun mental image. Um, I'm going to chuck in a quick how good. This is our 12th episode, which means we've been doing this for the most part weekly. We've been doing this for three months, guys. How good. How good. How good. Damn. And people have been listening for three months. Yeah. Now. Even better. I How still good. don't believe it. <laughs> but that's, that's I think, enough out of us. We'll uh, wrap it up there. Um, thank you for listening. If you have tuned in for the first time or the 12th time, thank you. It's amazing and awesome and we love it very, very much. Um, if you are new, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please interact with us on social medias. We're at the Far Post Pod on your Insta and your Twitter and everything else. And until then, we'll uh, see you all next week. So, um, bye. <laughs>